Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. Well, here we are. Evan's time to shine. The biggest story in the sporting world is 50-year-old Phil Mickelson winning a major for the first time in roughly 100 years. 50 years old. Phil Mickelson. Evan, thoughts? Evan's not here. So... (laughs) (laughs) again (laughs) I can't think of anything more on brand for Evan (laughs) the only thing that makes us more on brand is it's a long weekend it's absolutely perfect for Evan who he is as a being a being is probably the only accurate way you can describe that guy I love when uh you know, sometimes we we'll have a conversation with like a listener or a fan or something, and it's just like a casual chat or whatever. And uh, they like to take the opportunity to get to know. It's always they want to get to know Evan a little bit better, um, and they always ask questions. And Brad and I's answers are always genuinely, honestly, oh yeah, we don't know, we don't know that about him either. No, yeah, we don't know what he does with his free time. We don't know if he was serious about this. We we know very little about him. He's as much of an enigma as we play him up to be on the show, nearly. A few episodes ago, I equated my knowledge to, I think, therefore I am, and that's about all I'm reasonably sure of in this world. Uh, given that Evan doesn't qualify into that, then yeah, that's I literally know nothing of Evan. <laughs> well, shorthanded on the Wind Wheel podcast today, but we'll have fun nonetheless. Uh, welcome to the show. I'm Ryan Hanna. And I'm Evan for today. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to miss him. Uh, I think that's why we'll hold off one more episode before getting into the prospect profiles, because it's just not complete without his, well, what is there to say? What else is there to say? What else is there to say? Uh, before we get started on the show, I uh, first want to make sure we get back to uh, calling out the Jamie Daniels Foundation. It's an organization that we've partnered with uh, and that you guys just completed a stellar fundraiser for uh, nearly 4500 bucks uh, that you guys raised. Um, the more that we talk about substance use disorder, the faster we can end the stigma and get support to those in need. The Jamie Daniels Foundation is a children's foundation initiative, and it was established in memory of Jamie Daniels uh, and founded by Jamie's father and Red Wings leader announcer Ken Daniels and Jamie's mother Lisa Daniels Goldman. The foundation strives to end the stigma of substance use disorder and provide support to those struggling with the disease or who are in recovery. To learn more and support, visit jamiedanielsfoundation.org. It's really cool hearing uh, Ken Daniels call the um, Carolina Nashville game today. Just uh, expanding his chops as an elite NHL broadcaster. Please, please ESPN, get him for some national games. Or some. current sports, either or. Some, not all. He stays. Whenever the three Detroit has, please. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on today's podcast, I think there's been, because of the nature of how last week went with the Blash Hill news dropping on Tuesday, so we dropped our midweek episode a little earlier, and then on Thursday, we dropped our 
Patreon exclusive. Uh, it's been almost a week since we've had a uh, an actual episode, so uh, quite a bit of playoff updates to come, uh, including a couple uh, notable events there. Uh, we'll be talking about some Red Wings news uh, in terms of stories that kind of came out of the exit interviews and the wrap-up to that media session and uh, ELC signings, which are very exciting. Uh, and then we'll get into our the final part of our Red Wings review uh, little series here that we we promised uh, we'd get wrapped up. So uh, quite a bit to talk about considering nothing has really happened in the Red Wings world outside of those ELCs. Uh, what do we want to start with? The exit interviews? Yeah, let's nah. do that. Nah. Nah? We got to start with the most fun stuff. The ELCs. I got it. For Lunda, well, it wasn't even ELC. The big news of the week for Red Wings fans has to be for Lunda throwing out a goodbye post to Lucas Raymond, which we which were not, means. which we were not overly surprised by, but it was a question mark because I think everybody thought there was a good chance that Raymond would spend another year in the SHL, play top six, top line minutes, maybe even just like really, really dominate that league. Before he jumps over to North America, I we didn't even really have a chance to form an opinion on the subject before um, news broke that Lucas Raymond had played his last game for, for London. Now, there has not been confirmation from anybody in Detroit, from what I can tell, or at least what I've read, that he is in fact coming to, uh, we'll say Michigan, because he could play Detroit, more likely Grand Rapids next year. Um. But I can't see him making a lateral move in Europe. Like he was playing for one of the top organizations in Europe. So if he's leaving for Lunda, I think it's a pretty safe assumption he's coming to North America. He signed his entry level contract months ago, so there's no issues there. Um, now that we've had a few days to digest it, I, I really truly do believe this is the right move for Lucas Raymond. I think his style of game actually translates better to smaller ice, despite him being a smaller player, just because he is so quick shifty and his, his brain operates at a speed. Uh, most humans cannot. Um, and then this will give him time, proper time to fully adjust. Now he's played on North American ice before in tournaments and stuff like that and dominated, but, um, this is going to be at a whole new level and some people will feel it's rushed, but when you're picked fourth overall and you're as good as Lucas Raymond is, it's not rushed. He's he's ready. Do I expect him to come over and dominate Grand Rapids or make Detroit out of training camp? No. I, I think he'll do well. I think he'll do really well. But if anybody's sitting here and expecting him to put up 75 points in 50 AHL games or to make the Red Wings out of camp and be a candidate for Rookie of the Year, don't see the either of those things happening. But if he can get into Grand Rapids and, you know, 0.75 plus points per game, I think that's a phenomenal season. Uh, especially for someone like him and his age and et cetera. So yeah, it's nice that this broke three days before the episode because at least we had time to fully digest it. Honestly, maybe I'm just, uh, maybe I was just an optimist, but I saw it as I would have been pretty shocked if this didn't happen. I think the, the actual post from Ferlanda was nice because it made it a concrete thing, but if you consider where the Red Wings are at in this timeline and, you know, Again, we repeat this quite a bit. Uh, Eisenman is very upfront with acknowledging how long this rebuild is going to take. Uh, it's it's really, I think, important to remember as well that Eisenman's not a fan of that. He's not happy that it's going to take a long time. So 
the sooner you can move someone, or I think the instant someone is viable to move over into the organization, starting with Grand Rapids, or at least like you're coming to the training camps and you're fighting for a spot uh, on the roster as a young guy, you do it. Um, like Moritz Sider doing this year in Sweden was probably the closest we'll see to over-ripening, so to speak, and I don't think it was an over-ripening season, uh, that you'll see with a premier Red Wings prospect for a while to come. Not until the Red Wings kind of catch up and are a, a solid, viable team again are you going to see a lot of extended patience, so to speak. I don't think it's rushing Lucas Raymond over, but yeah, I, I just saw it as his natural next step. I don't really see a lot of benefit to have him uh, in the SHL again at the mercy uh, of a team outside of the organization and playing on a different ice. Yeah, and I agree with the points you made, Brad. Like, I think he'll – hopefully it'll suit his style of game better. But at the very least, the sooner you get him on that ice and adjust it to the pro game in North America, the better it is. I don't know. I, I, I don't think it's completely impossible that he makes a team out of camp. I would absolutely not bet on it, but it's not impossible. I I almost don't want him to. For a lot of the reasons I explained in last episode, which I'm not going to start that flame more tonight. But even beyond that, you look at a lot of, and this is going to lead into the next part of this. You look at a lot of teams around the NHL, and the best example of this is probably Tampa Bay, when Steve Eisman was in charge of it. Most of their core pieces played in the AHL together before Tampa recalled them. Uh, Tampa's farm team, I don't remember if they were Norfolk or Syracuse at the time because I know that switched over the years. But um, they won a Calder Cup with Andre Pilat and Tyler Johnson, et cetera, as the center of it. And then they came up and they all dominated the NHL together. So obviously, with all the news that's broke this week, we hope Raymond and Bergering come over and make the Red Wings. But what's more likely going to happen here is Raymond and Berggren and maybe Vero and maybe Albert Johansson and guys who are shaping up to be central pieces for the Red Wings future are going to play together in Grand Rapids. They're going to develop that chemistry. They're going to get to know each other really well. Um, if Berggren and Johansson come over together with Raymond, having three new Swedes on the team will make the transition for them so much easier because, you know, they're learning a new culture, new style of hockey, and they can do it together. That way they're not just the guy in the room, the, the new guy, right? So I could see that being hugely beneficial. I don't think Raymond and Berggren are going to be there long. I think they're one and dones. I could maybe see Johansson getting two years, but even that might not happen. Um, so yeah, it's important to get all of these guys over as soon as possible. So um, now there's no guarantee Berggren or Vero do come over or Johansson even for that matter, but Vero and Berggren signing their ELCs this week and Johansson signed his last week means or last year, sorry means it's all very possible. Yeah, as Brad mentioned there, the other news here was that Jonathan Bergeron signed his ELC uh, and Emil Vero out of Finland as well uh, did the same. I, honestly, this is exciting in two different ways, but almost equally as exciting. Uh, I want to say for Vero, he is the second of Detroit's third round picks from last year, the first being Donovan Soprango not too long ago to sign his ELC. That's great news. Like 
that is fantastic news for your draft. If those guys are already kind of moving forward in this, in the uh, organization. Um, 70th overall, was he Vero? Uh, that sounds right. Yeah. I know yeah. Sabrango would have been 63rd. So when you already have that, and Vero was a little bit more of a speculative pick. Um, I don't want to say off the board, but kind of more of an unknown, uh, a little bit of a, you're swinging harder with this pick because if he hits, he'll hit in a bigger way than his draft position would dictate. Um, so again, great that Vero is already tracking in such a positive way. Uh, they liked what they saw from him this season. He had a strong, uh, playoffs overseas as well. So, uh, good news for Vero. And you know what? Jonathan Bergeron, I don't think he doesn't get enough credit because I think Red Wings fans who are really in the know understand, but I think you cannot give him too much credit. Like Jonathan Bergeron, by all rights, had everything thrown at him where if he came back and had a pretty okay year and just so showed some signs of uh, positive play, we'd be pretty happy. Um, he had multiple injuries that were really debilitating towards really important years of his de- development. And what did he do? He came out and had a stellar year, a stellar year in the SHL. The Red Wings have a guy who is poised, if he stays on track, to play in their top six. This is another top six winger, another talented, skilled winger who's coming through. And like you said, Brad, at the same time as Raymond, at the same time as Johansson, at the same time as a lot of this young crop is coming through, that is super promising. That is extremely exciting. So for both uh, Bergeron and Vero to sign those ELCs, it's um, it's nice to see the output uh, from the, uh, the input, which is 1 billion draft picks over that last however many years. So the uh, the gems are starting to be uncovered, so to speak. Are, are we happy or is it concerning that both the Red Wings third round picks last year signed their ELC before any of their three second round picks? <laughs> let's, not, let's not get into the details of the semantics, Brad. Come on. <laughs> I mean, well, uh, William Wallander just did sign with Rogla. Uh, in the SHL for next season. So he's taking a step up. So I guess we can't exactly be upset. And I, he, we knew the second the Wings took Wallander at 32, he was a long-term project. So he's tracking about on pace. Uh, Mo Sider's replacement in Roglas, as fate would have it. Uh, <laughs> um, and Niederbach had a good year. I think Cross Hannis was really the only disappointment this year of the Red Wings' first six picks. So... I think that's tracking pretty well because I think every one of them at least performed to or over expectation for the year. So, uh, yeah, I think it's overall positive. Grand Rapids Griffins. That's a hot ticket. It is. It's literally going to be one of the most fascinating teams in all of North America next year. Can you imagine Bergeron, Raymond, Vero, Johansson, Valeno might still spend some time this year, and God knows what other prospects might end up there next year. It could be, it could be a hell of an adventure in Grand Rapids in a good way. I hope Valeno's not there, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we can't discount the coach in detroit so listeners listeners should know how painful it is for us that the literally the last event that we had to cancel before the pandemic hit was a uh, grand rapids multiple night meetup few games first time being credentialed for pro hockey yeah someday we'll get back there someday um red wings exit interviews nothing earth shattering here but uh i think important to note jonathan bernier really reconfirmed 
and reiterated his desire to be in Detroit. And man, in terms of character and in terms of just sticking it through, the Red Wings have been so lucky with goaltenders. I know people love to shit on Jimmy Howard, but that guy put up with a lot of really bad Red Wings teams, and he just stuck through it year after year. And to go from Howard to Bernier, who understands how much he's overperforming based on what's expected of him and wants to be here and wants to be here to see it through. He could leave and get a decent payday and be on a better team and probably be in the playoffs. And he's choosing to, you know, he he's at least nothing signed yet, but he wants to stay in Detroit because he wants to see this process through and be on the other side of it. He mentioned, you know, he left Toronto and and that was a regret for him because not that he wants to desperately go back to Toronto, but he wants to go through the rebuild process and be on the other side. And he didn't see that process through in Toronto. So I don't know. I, I, I just really admire that. And I think Red Wings, the Red Wings are lucky and they have been with uh, goalies. Well, if uh, Jonathan Bernier has a problem with being bored, then hey, the Red Wings are the spot for him because that is one thing he will never be in that crease. So, no, it's good. And um, it's funny. Toronto has goaltending issues, and here we are with Jonathan Bernier now. And, you know, also water is wet. But yeah, it was, I mean, what more could you want? Now, he did say he wants to see this through. And I'm super happy to hear that. And obviously, we've been advocating for the Red Wings to bring Bernie back all year. Like, this isn't an opinion we're forming just because he said this. But he wants to see this through. And and the pessimistic side of me looks at that number underneath age in his description and makes me wonder, "Eh, Johnny, for your sake, buddy, can, can you really... This isn't going to be quick. You're going to be in your mid-30s by the time we're turning this around. So for Bernie's best interest, if he wants to take a run at a cup, yeah, he. this is the summer for him to do it. But if he really is passionate, no Red Wings fan should complain about that. And if he resigns, we should all be the happiest for him, for it, him, and it. whatever it works. You know what I meant? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, whether or not he's a starting goalie on the other side of the rebuild. That's one of those questions where the answer might be a bit obvious, but why, you know, why drag ourselves down with something that's not going to matter for a long time, which is like the tagline for a lot of conversations about post rebuild stuff. Oh, oh yeah. And I'm not saying there's any downsides for us if Bernie resigns and wants to see this through. The downsides are entirely for Bernie. <laughs> and again, hey, like if he's happy, Red Wings fans are thrilled. Exactly. Um, Dylan Larkin, more of a, you know, bummer interview. Not that, he, you know, Dylan Larkin was the bummer himself, but he talked about his injury uh, after the cross check from Jamie Benn that went unpunished, believe it or not, by the NHL Department of Player Safety. Um, still trying to figure out where they got that name from. Uh, spent a couple nights in the hospital, wore a neck brace. You know, damage to his vertebrae seems to be what, what the implication is here there or what the implication is here. We're not going to just kind of hash out why it's messed up. And Jamie Ben, you know, it was a dirty cheap shot from him in the NHL uh, failed player safety as a concept yet again for 30 minutes. But I just wanted to bring it up because if a guy spends nights in the hospital and is wearing a neck brace and has damage to his vertebrae because of a cross check on a vulnerable player on the ice, it just needs it, it it needs being brought up 
Jamie Ben messed up and the league messed up harder by letting it go unpunished. Plain and simple. Yeah, and it wasn't an incidental play where, oh, I was going to hit him and I took a bad line and hit him in the face, which usually is a weak excuse, but at least, you know, there's there's something to it. Uh, yeah, Larkin was out of the play on the ground. It was just a straight up cheap shot. We've went over this a thousand times. It was there was no nothing incidental about it. It was a deliberate, malicious act that quite honestly severely injured the player whose season ended. Now, this is one of the things that pisses me off because let's be honest, we all follow national hockey media, whether you're in Canada or the States. I don't think I heard the Red Wings name five times this year outside of an actual game. The Red Wings were a non-story this year, nor should they have been. They, I mean, we all saw what we saw, a boring, bad hockey team. So why would the national media talk about this? But that has a, in my mind, and you follow the NHL long enough, you know that has a lot to do with why Jamie Benn got unpunished because this didn't get attention. If that was Jamie Benn on Austin Matthews or Sidney Crosby, he's suspended. I'll bet, or, sorry, the NHL Department of Player Safety still sucks at their job, but maximum allowable fine at least because people would have saw it talked about it there would have been a reaction whether or not we would have agreed on what the reaction should have been there would have been a reaction but because the most i hate to say it the most irrelevant hockey team in the nhl this year was the one that was on the receiving end of it this shit goes unpunished and this is why i'm all the more infuriated that no red wing did anything about it after the fact despite having two or three games to do something about it. And I know I went on for half an hour about that the episode after, so I'm not going to rehash that. But yeah, needless to say, uh, when Detroit plays Dallas uh, next season, if Giovanni Smith isn't lining up directly across from Jamie Benn on the opening faceoff, it's a failure of everybody involved. Yep. Yep. I just, it is what it is at this point. Like, I'm not surprised it went unpunished, but. Yeah, it's just gross. The good news is Larkin's going to be back and healthy. Uh, he's expected to be ready for next year, which is good. You know, again, on track with Bertuzzi. We talked about him uh, last episode. It seems like he's on track to to uh, be back for next season. So <sighs> I'm tired of the Department of Player Safety, and we'll be talking about them again this episode, of course. But eh, anyways, let's do it now. Playoff update. Uh, Nazem Kadri, uh, had one hell of a hit to the head on who was it? Schwartz, Justin Falk, Falk. Yeah, it was Justin Falk. Ugly hit. Like it, it contacted the head. Falk went down. It was bad. Um, Nazem Kadri got suspended for eight games. And honestly, that's an appropriate suspension in my mind. I wish that was the standard or level of, um, punitive measure that was applied to every single hit or play that was you know that has that level of you know potential damaging impact uh i was kind of surprised i what i mean kind of surprised extremely surprised that he got eight games um credit to the department of player safety for getting it right now i have very big they saw the backlash from Tom Wilson. They've heard, they've had discussions uh, internally after that situation. And they are now, they have a, a heightened focus on making sure that they're sending the message that they are, you can't just get away with whatever. Does that make the Tom Wilson situation okay? Depends on where you fall on that. Evan's not here, so it's a 2-0 argument today. We win, Brad. Um, 
but that's what I kind of hear, or that's the message I'm hearing from the Department of Player Safety. Kadri is appealing it, and what he's going to say is, hey, it's the playoffs. You always reduce suspensions for the playoffs, and what the hell? You guys never suspend people for this many games. What is going on here? So, I understand the optics of this situation where, you know, obviously the NHL Department of Player Stupidity is at the forefront of all the controversy with the Wilson stuff. And obviously they knew all eyes would be on him here, but this is different for as much as I disagreed with what they did. And as much as I disagreed with some opinions that were floating around, I can't argue there was a level of gray area with the Tom Wilson incident. It was not necessarily one malicious act. It was a cumulative event of everything he did. There's not a ton of precedence for that. There literally was one suspension before that where they used that kind of broad definition. Ironically enough, it was on Tom Wilson. But there's no gray area on this cadre hit. It was a textbook blindside hit, which Matt Cook made a super forefront talking point where they amended the rules to specifically address this type of hit. And not only was it a blindside hit, not only was the primary point of contact the head, the only point of contact was the head. This was the easiest review ever for the Department of Player Safety because it wasn't if they were going to suspend him. It wasn't an if it was a suspendable act like it was with Wilson. This was, this is bad. We're suspending him for it. How long? Now, I, as stupid as it is, this is Kadri's third suspension in the first round of the playoffs in the last four years, which is just staggering. Somehow he's not considered a repeat offender by textbook definition of it. So I honestly, eight games to me was light, but understanding playoff games are worth more. Colorado's a contender, et cetera, et cetera. I will accept it. It's It's in the ballpark of what I was expecting. So... I'm not, this is a length that I'm not going to sit here and and scream at them for. It's acceptable. What is going to happen, at least my prediction, and is going to make this complete bullshit is Colorado finished their sweep of St. Louis today. They have moved on to the second round. So now the games in Kadri's suspension are worth more by traditional NHL standards in the history of suspensions uh, outside of the, the later, deeper you get into the playoffs, I should say. So I'm betting this gets reduced because he's no longer suspended for just first and second round games. There's a strong chance he is now suspended for third round games. And I don't think the NHL player department, department of player safety is going to be fully on board with that. So like, oh yeah, okay. Maybe we'll knock off a game or two, which is utter bullshit if it happens. Well, but the I appeal be- is directly to Gary Bettman. Like the player safety department player safety is out now. Like it's just Gary. Yeah, but you know that Gary's not going to go too, too far off. And I, I I mean, they all, they work for him. If Bettman truly wanted reform in the Department of Player Safety, it would have it. He's complicit in everything that's happened. He has not stepped in and changed the standard. He has not stepped in and changed who's in charge of it. He has not changed personnel. He's just as guilty as Paris. I preach to death on this podcast all the time. Every... Order of responsibility is from the top down. So you could make the argument Bettman's more responsible for this problem than Peros. Because if Peros is bad at his job, Bettman can fix that, but he hasn't. So either way, it's still my prediction that that's going to happen. And it's going to suck because like I said earlier on, there's no defending this hit. 
There's not. Again, with the Wilson incident, there's gray area. I will disagree with people who see the other side of it, but I understand your argument. Nobody's been suspended for this exact play. It was accumulation of events. There's not a lot of precedence for that. I understand those arguments and I'm not going to agree with them, but I get it. There's no arguing this hit. If you're arguing this hit saying, oh, it's not that bad or, oh, he shouldn't get suspended. You're wrong and you're a Neanderthal. There's there's nothing, nothing to justify this hit. Kadri has no leg to stand on. His whole argument for his appeal is, please, I want to play in the conference finals. <laughs> please? That's his whole argument. There's He's got nothing to defend himself on. Well, his appeal will be, this isn't the standard that you guys have applied to a lot of other people before. And I hope that the NHL just says, nope. Uh, is this stands and I really, 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 really hope the Department of Player Safety continues this trend of just making common sense uh, decisions. And it's not been across the board. They have not been perfect since the Wilson incident. And I, I don't expect perfection because it's that would be insane. Uh, but for big plays like this, they're going heavier. I would love to see them crack down on cross checks more like malicious cross checks but that's an argument for a different hey shea weber got a five thousand dollar fine yeah shea weber's never eh, again a different day there's only so much uh bringing <laughs> up old frustrations that we can do on one episode and it's uh, a podcast rule we can't talk about shea weber without him actually being here yeah that's true he's uh he's away today the john tavares incident oh man fuck the the image of him getting up and like he obviously he was concussed like he was on a different planet like he had no idea where he was and he was just trying to get up as the trainer was trying to keep his neck straight which was exactly the right thing to be doing he had to focus on that rather than holding Tavares down but Tavares getting up and then like leaning back because he was on un- practically unconscious was one of the scariest things I've ever witnessed as I was watching a hockey game. Uh, the amount of relief that came with both the image of Tavares giving his thumbs up and then the news that there is no major damage structurally. There's no brain bleeds or anything at the hospital. Obviously, he has a wicked concussion. There's no getting around that. Like He, he won't be on the ice for a while. And a knee injury, which I actually suspect came from either the Maybe the collision, but maybe when he just like bent straight backwards. I don't know. Anyways, horrifying incident. You're be you're gonna be hard pressed to find someone who has spoken more <laughs> ill words towards Corey Perry over his career than me or or you or Evan. Um, that was completely accidental. A hundred percent, it wasn't on Perry. Thousand percent accidental. And for once, I saw hockey Twitter for the most part be reasonable. Everybody's like. Yeah, yeah, that was accidental. Even the biggest Corey Perry detractors were like, there's no way he's getting out of the way of that. He he tried. You could see he literally tried and had no time or space to do it. And it just sucks. This is one of those incidents. It just sucks. Nobody involved at any point in that play did anything wrong. Just a perfect storm of suck. Yeah. And yeah, because I saw it happen. I until he put his thumbs up, I wasn't convinced Tavares wasn't partially paralyzed. Like nobody's head should bend that far backwards that rapidly. That was yeah, horrifying. Like, like that was a, oh, wow. Hockey doesn't matter right now moment. Like 
all of no, them yeah. went away. I'm yep. uh, I'm all for teams rallying around in big moments like this, and I am not at all surprised, and I do not take anything away from the Maple Leafs from struggling after that because that has that just it pulls you away. Like, how are you meant to focus on the game, really? No, you can't. It's not a coincidence. Montreal scored a couple minutes late. No, because I mean, I understand why Felino fought Perry, and I can't believe. I can't believe that the world has ever made me feel bad for Corey Perry, but when they did the replay and they showed Felino talking to Perry before the puck drop, like you could see the hurt and the like the trying to reason on Perry's face. Like it's not that he was scared to fight or, or didn't want to go. He was trying to say, like, I didn't do it on purpose. Like Perry and Tavares are friends. A lot of the guys who like played on Team Canada together in that like cohort age group, like those guys are buddies. And he was trying to say to Felino, like, I didn't do that on purpose. Like, I feel sick about this. I don't want to fight you. And even like Felino, whether Felino was saying, uh, look, I know, but we have to do this just to clear the air. Or he just hadn't seen the replays yet because the players on the ice don't have the privilege of multiple slow-mo replays like we do. Um, I get it. Even when they fought, Perry wasn't like he was going after Felino to try and clutch. Like he wasn't throwing them. He was. Perry was going through the paces so it could be wrapped up and done. And I thought it was a stupid fight. I actually felt really bad for Corey Perry, but I do see the value in just getting that out of the way and stopping it from being a distraction for both teams for the rest of the series. This I went on rants about this before and I'm going to again. The code in hockey is bullshit. We all want to acknowledge it. We all want to assume the players live by it, but there is no code. It's different to everybody else. Man, as Ryan said, there's few players I hate on this planet more than Corey Perry, but man, he just watched. He He's not convinced in that moment he didn't just paralyze his friend. And you're going to try and get him to fight. Like, I, I don't want to call Felino a scumbag because I understand emotions are high. His captain, his teammate, his friends laying on the ice. We all saw. I get it. We live in an era of technology. You can't tell me nobody on that bench didn't see a replay. You can't tell me players weren't talking about it. I don't know if it was on the Jumbotron or the iPads. You can see a replay. You could see it in Perry's face when he was trying to say it was an accident, man. Like He wasn't aggressive. He was just like, Ryan was exactly right. You could see it on his face. He's like, what do you want me to do, man? And you know, credit to Perry for just doing it and getting it over with. Um, nobody is ever forced to drop the gloves, but I think he understood once he saw how persistent Felino was like, I can deal with this shit all game or I can end it now. Although that being said, there was some shit from Wayne Simmons trying to get Perry to fight later in the game too, which I have, I actually have a bigger problem with that than what Felino did, but Perry obviously turned down that one because he had already quote unquote paid his price. But yeah, this is, it was stupid. I get it, but that's a top five dumb hockey fight of all time. The Leafs are concerned about their captain being possibly having a career-ending injury. Perry's concerned about one of his friends having a career-ending injury. It's a playoff game, let's not forget. So there's still the whole context of that on the line after this incident. Everybody is so emotionally distraught if you're even in the building, let alone involved in the game. Nobody wants a fight there. And if anybody who does is clueless, that's the reality of it. Now, clueless doesn't mean asshole. 
So like I said, I'm not calling anybody on the Leafs who wanted this retribution an a-hole. I get it, but it's clueless. Like it's not hard to stay informed even from the bench in today's NHL. So whatever. I'm glad nobody got hurt in the fight afterwards. So that wasn't piling on because one player gets severe brain damage on the ice. What better? What? more typical hockey thing to do than attempt to give someone else a brain injury right afterwards. Just absolutely <laughs> clueless. Um, yeah. Anyhow, but, let's do a play. Yeah, go no, ahead. no, no. Before we go, we haven't done one of these in a while. Mike uh, Milbury minute. On what? Bef- before we're done with this topic, I have a Mike Milbury minute. Uh, when this starts, if children are around mute, there's going to be a lot of swear words, a lot of anger. Okay. This is, I'm going to try and fit this in under a minute. I'm not guaranteeing it's going to go, but it's, it's, I need a Mike Milbury minute here. All right. Mike Milbury minute in three, two, go. A player almost fucking died on the ice. Did we need to see 25 slow-mo replays of this? We all know right away how severe this incident was watching the players' reactions, watching, listening to the sounds in the room. We knew it was bad. We didn't need slow-mo breakdowns of this. And then the Toronto Sun and the Montreal Gazette putting Tavares basically unconscious and bloodied on the cover of their newspaper with the caption, Captain Crunched. Are you absolutely heartless? You unhumane pieces of, inhumane pieces of shit. You are a garbage person if you wrote that or you okayed that. Everybody involved with that cover sucks as a human being. And I had, I called them out on Twitter for it. And I had people in my comments saying, oh, society's gotten tough or uh, gotten too soft. Are you fucked? What if that's on a newsstand in a convenience store and I'm walking my four-year-old daughter or my one-year-old son past that and they're trying to play hockey or they want to play hockey growing up, but they see that. What if his fan, John Tavares' friends and family have to see that? One of the most traumatizing events of their life, John Tavares' wife and kids wondering if he's dead, if he's ever going to be able to walk again, if he's ever going to be able to play hockey again, and they have to walk by that on the cover of a newspaper. I That was the angriest I've gotten about anything in the game of hockey in years. It was just the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. Yeah, you know what? That rag does that intentionally with those headlines they know what oh, they're doing classic it's- toronto son they do garbage like this all the time yeah all the trash. time it's trash um sad to see but wasn't surprised at all i like the moment i saw the the headline in the picture i was like yeah i know exactly who did that yeah pretty yeah. disgraceful um playoff update let's talk R-I-P about that st louis yeah, Colorado finishes the sweep four games. They dominate St. Louis. I had Colorado winning the cup, and I'm feeling really good about that pick right now. That team is an absolute buzzsaw. Holy. I already forget who I picked. Kale, watching Kale McCarr, he's like one of those uh, like Dyson vacuums that has the ball <laughs> and just moves in any direction. Like His mobility on the blue line is... If they showed you a video of that, I'm like, oh, that's a simulation of what like the perfect defenseman would move like on the blue line. But now show me how actual defensemen play. Like that he is how do you offend how do you defend that or how do you pressure that as a forward, you know, pushing the point? You can't. You're just gonna end up looking stupid. You might as well sit back and just try to block the shot, honestly. No, that's when you play prevent defense. Literally yeah. pa- passive attack, 
Just keep yourself between him and the net and pray. It's all you can do. If you are even the slightest bit aggressive, he has you. You are toast. His ankle flexion and mobility uh, combined with being able to do all that stuff on his skates with the puck, like Ryan said, in any direction is unbelievable. It's absolutely staggering. Uh, Vegas is leading Minnesota 3-1, which is, I'm actually kind of surprised that they've gotten to 3-1. Um, but again, Vegas looks like the probably team most poised to give Colorado a tough time, um, in round two or at any point during the Western conference side of these playoffs. They are the two best teams in the league, just full stop. And one of them is not getting out of a second round, which is a shame, but oh, is that going to be one hell of a second round matchup? I do feel bad because Minnesota is a really fun team and the series isn't over. I mean, they play again tomorrow night, but uh, yeah, Vegas looks super strong. Minnesota does have a history of 3-1 comebacks, so whatever that's worth. Um, And yeah, I said the Western side of the playoffs. That's not exactly how it works this year. Uh, Toronto was the West Division. Yeah, that's true. Toronto, Montreal. Toronto did lose the first game against Montreal um, with the Tavares incident, but came back and looked really, really strong last night. So that series is tied 1-1, um, and things are heating up. Every seems like everything after the play is chippy, uh, people clamoring to fight cross-checks. So uh, if you're a fan of either of those teams, you're stressed and angry all the time. But hey, if you're us, you're just enjoying it, kind of like the Battle of Florida. Yeah, this is the series where lack of fans really sucks because this would be... Oh, God. Could you imagine? Could you imagine Toronto and Montreal? But now, at least the hockey's been decent. Uh, Edmonton, Winnipeg. As we're speaking, game three is happening right now. Edmonton is up 2-0 halfway through the third or the halfway through the second. McDavid, those are his first two points of the series. Uh, Winnipeg up 2-0 in that series. Look, I understand Edmonton's not exactly a com- uh, a complete team, but when you have a couple of cheat codes up front, what's their bugaboo? Like, why are they so Leafs-esque when they get to the playoffs? Because they have the same problem the Leafs did for a while. It doesn't matter how good your horses are. NHL teams time and time and time and time again have proved that superstars can cancel each other out or you can shut down a superstar or two it's it's been done time and time again so when that happens your depth has to take over and quite frankly edmonton has none they might have the worth they probably have the worst team depth of any team in the playoffs um that being said the narrative started Connor mcdavid can he perform in the playoffs gets two assists in the first like 12 minutes of the game so hmm, shocking um even if he gets going, though, there's nothing that says that Shifley and Wheeler and Ehlers is back tonight. Those guys might just go punch for punch offensively. It's not happening tonight. But when a team like Edmonton lacks depth, the game plan for Winnipeg is very simple. Everything to McDavid and Drysaddle, and we'll take our chances with the other slappies. And it's been working. They have been throwing everything in the kitchen sink at those two, and it's worked. Because obviously they have uh, the two goals today. One of them was on a five on three, which you're just not stopping them. So game plan goes out the window. You just pray Hellebuck can stop them. Um, But yeah, so I'm not saying McDavid and Drysdale can't overcome this. If there's anybody in the league who could, it's them. But history has taught us teams with 
uh, no depth don't go very far in the playoffs. Ultimately, you win championships with your horses, but you don't get to the championship without a little help. When at the trade deadline, when Ken Holland said, like, this team isn't at a point for me to start, you know, selling out to build around a cup run. I understand the the people who push back when I criticize that they were technically correct in saying like the timing isn't right. Like Edmonton isn't perfectly poised to either acquire those assets or mortgage futures. But all I can think of is this not the exception. Is this not where you do what Pittsburgh has done where on paper we criticize them. But when you look on the ice, you see Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin. And you say, yep, as so long as that is our center depth, we are going to, we're going to be going for the cup. When you have the best player of his generation by all accounts and then someone else who's not terribly far behind, do you not sell out every year and do whatever the hell you can to go for a cup? You know what the Penguins had? Chris Letang, a franchise goalie, and depth. Yeah. Yeah, Edmonton doesn't have any of those three things right now. Mike Smith, don't get me wrong, unbelievable story this year. And we're all super impressed with whatever he's with what he's been able to do. I don't think there's a person on the planet who went into the playoffs with confidence that that was going to keep going. Good chance it would, but full confidence. No, Edmonton's defense. They did have a breakout season with from Darnell Nurse, but according to shooting percentages, it wasn't sustainable. So not a ton of confidence there. Um, And yeah, like, I think they're playing McDavid and Drysaddle in the same line tonight. So what the hell else is going to happen for the other 35 minutes of the game when they're not on the ice? It's going to be in Winnipeg's favor. So I get it. I, I agree with Holland. This, If McDavid and Drysaddle can drag them through the playoffs, kicking and scre- screaming, great. But yeah, they're not in a position to make a run right now. Now, full season of Bouchard next year. Maybe Broberg comes up. Maybe Benson comes up. Maybe... You know, Yamamoto takes another step and then they acquire two or three pretty good pieces in the offseason. Now you're talking. Now you've got two, three good lines. So it makes sense to go and acquire some depth at the deadline. But yeah, especially too, when you look at Edmonton, like how the Leafs just ran Edmonton's show this year, even if Edmonton claws back and gets past Winnipeg, I don't think anybody's going to bet on them to beat the Leafs. So it sucks for McDavid and Dreisaitl basically having to quote unquote wait another year, but unless they pull a miracle. And I'm not saying they can't do it, but unless they pull a miracle, it's not happening. Uh, Islanders and Penguins, speaking of the Pens, 2-2 that series. Underrated fun series. Who says the Islanders aren't fun? Holy shit, that has been great. I've watched a few of the games in that series. Great hockey. Sign me up. Absolutely. Yeah. Questionable goaltending with uh, two high-paced teams. Yes, please. Hurricanes and Preds tied 2-2 after the Preds won in double OT today. Really shocked. I, I thought of the two series that could be sweeps, I thought it'd be Colorado or Carolina. And I'm, I'm pretty surprised that Carolina's dropped two to the Preds. Both of them have been in double OT, both games in Nashville, but still. Both games dominated, dominated by Carolina. Yeah. You see Soros, man. It, remember when Detroit almost took Tampa out in the playoffs in 2015 just because mm-hmm. Peter Mrazic got hot? It happens. It absolutely happens. And not that Alex Ndelkovic has been bad. He's He made some 10-bell saves today. But, uh, man, UC Soros is on another level. I think he had 
58 saves in his win today. Full credit to him. Um, unbelievable. Like Car- that, This should have been a sweep for Carolina. They have been clearly and obviously the better team in this series, but the best player in this series has been UC Saros. The Battle of Florida, disappointingly, is 3-1. I was hoping that'd be a closer series, but here's to uh, Florida dragging it to at least seven. Uh, Tampa's up 3-1 so far. I think the storyline has to be two things here. One, amazing for everyone involved, fans especially. Best series by far. Best four games of any series. Just chaos. Love it. Secondly... I would like to call back to when I said, why are you starting to Bobrovsky? Florida hasn't been able to get something to stick in net the whole time. And now they are starting poetically by all. It looks like they're starting Spencer Knight in game five on Monday night. Quenville, I think, confirmed it today. Third goalie in five games. Unbelievable. This is why. Okay. We're going to talk about this in a future episode in in regards to the draft and how this ties in, but this is why you never pay a goalie $10 million. Ever. Ever, ever, ever. Don't care who it is. Never do it. And now, uh, yeah, now in Florida's defense, they are missing Aaron Ekblad, which is a huge piece. And Tampa is like $12 million over the salary cap right now, which I still can't believe that's allowed in the CBA, but. I I don't begrudge Tampa for doing it. If they're allowed to do it, do it. And they did. But, uh, oh boy, um, Florida is being unraveled by shitty goaltending because take out goaltending, they have been going punch for punch with Tampa for most of this series. And the series that's most relevant to Detroit, obviously, is Washington-Boston. Uh, Boston has taken a 3-1 advantage in that one, uh, which is Kind of and, them because and are currently up two nothing in game five. Oh, is it already two nothing? Oh my goodness. Yeah, um, I think Bergeron just scored. So it is two nothing Boston and the second intermission. So barring a minor miracle, the cap season is very likely over today. Which again I appreciate from Boston because they minimize the amount of time that we have to cheer for Boston. Um <laughs> Someone uh, someone asked, like, hey, why the hate for Boston? I should put it out there that it's not, in terms of, like, fandom hatred, it's not like the Toronto, the Chicago at the height of the Detroit rivalry. Uh, but I think it's just a general good rule in sports to just have a present disdain for Boston sports. I think it's the sign of a good, healthy heart and mind, I'm pretty sure. It's a, pr- it's a pretty good sign that you should hate Boston when we've talked about this podcast enough, how I'm an absolute mutt when it comes to sports fandom. Like I'm a Red Wings fan. I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. I'm a Toronto Blue Jays fan. So three very different markets. Every one of those teams absolutely hates Boston. The Jays hate the Red Sox. The Red Wings hate the Bruins and the Bills absolutely despise the Patriots. So yeah, no, it's just the problem with Boston sports is they're generally very good and their fans are very obnoxious, which is a horrible com- combination. So, yeah. And then as I learned with the Patriots this year, it gets worse when they suck. So it's okay to just blindly hate Boston sports, but the Red Wings being an original six rival, having a, at least by the Red Wings playoff standards, a relatively recent playoff series against the Bruins, we have good reason to dislike the Bruins. 
We'll get into the details of what this means for Detroit's pick maybe um, next episode, just because it's a little complicated, the process, and it's still up in the air. Uh, the the Washington's pick, so thus Detroit's in the first round, uh, will still depend on what happens in the second round as well, who moves on, what happens if they move on to the conference final. So uh, it's all a little muddy. Um, it's a like six-step layered process. Uh, and rather than dive into that now, because we have to jump into our next topic, we'll, we'll just save it. But still, the earlier Washington loses, the better it is overall for Detroit in that second first-round pick they own <sighs> in this draft. I think I saw today that with if Washington loses this series, Detroit's statistically likely to have that pick between 24 and 26 then. Yeah, it's about uh, the range, yeah. Yeah, the best case scenario for Detroit here would be for the division winners to start losing out. Um, so if the Islanders hold on to beat Pittsburgh, that bumps the Capitals pick up, which is good. I don't think... Um, well, Colorado's already moved on, so that horse is dead. Carolina could still get bound, so I guess now we have vested rooting interest in Nashville. And who would be the other one? Montreal over Toronto. So if you want to know what affects that pick now, here's your cheat sheet. Cheer for the Islanders, the Canadians, and the Predators. Uh, and the Lightning? maybe i don't i don't remember where all the second place teams finished exactly but yeah i don't know oh, what am i saying carolina stupid carolina yeah but yeah. <laughs> but the teams i think there are some second place division finishers who did finish above washington which could skew it yeah. but i have not dove deep enough into those numbers to know how it would affect it i yeah. think best case scenario now is the pick could get bumped up to like 23 which technically is pick 22 with arizona's forfeiture but semantics vegas and florida are the two non-division winners who finished above uh washington overall okay so then that tampa series might play in our favor then and i vegas is probably going to win so uh, this is actually shaping up right now way better than i think <laughs> any of us realistically thought it would so hey thanks washington and as much as i love the player there has been a little satisfaction drawn from how much capitals twitter really dislikes anthony mantha these playoffs so do with that information what you will um okay that's a quick uh, update on the playoffs we'll keep that up um all right not extremely quickly here but we're not going to go over the whole coaching conversation again just because what else have we done over the past two episodes especially um but just in the spirit of the red wings uh season in review um i think two things deserve to be kind of given a quick summary and then graded from each of us um coaching overall and i'd say special teams just because that was such a big storyline for the red wings and i think it deserves yes. This McDonald's cup will speak for Evan. <laughs> um, I'm going to start with special teams. Fail. F. Yeah, it's got to get the lowest grade. You know, we're, we're seeing the effects of that because Bilesman's not returning to the Red Wings. And when you have such a poor performance and an unwillingness to change anything like they did, you have to change it. Like You have to swap out that whoever is responsible for that. And that was Dan Bilesma. I do hear the argument that it was a weird season. You didn't get as many practices as you thought you would, but there was just this absolute unwillingness, unwillingness to do anything different. And the concepts that were 
there in front of them wasn't even hard. Like it wasn't some, you know, super exotic zone entry scheme and it wasn't some like really complex moving chessboard uh, cycle in the, the offensive zone on the power play. It was literally stop standing still, stop with exclusive perimeter passes. That's it. And when you have 40 straight power plays that fail, and then you almost immediately go on another pretty terrible power play streak and your penalty kill just sucks all year. Yeah, I mean, you deserve to get let go or you know seek other opportunities, whatever it is. It gets an F. So the power play, we know why it sucked. And you know the argument for, well, yeah, we didn't change anything because we had no practice. It's not an excuse. The other 30 teams had the same headaches to deal with. Sorry, it's just not. Um. You can make simple changes. I, I think any basic hockey fan could tell you Philip Peronik was god-awful as the power play quarterback on the number one unit. But we know what his strength is. There, remember, I still remember a game against Anaheim last season where in one shift, standing on the left half wall, Philip Peronik wired two off the post and scored on the third one. Like, we know what he's good at. We now have a very clear understanding of what he sucks at. Don't understand why that switch was never made. Um, No systems were even attempted to be changed. Uh, The personnel usages were questionable at best. I understand on the second unit, you know, can't polish a turd. So they get a pass there. But you could have done more with the first unit way sooner than they did. And they could have tried different things with that first unit. I think Phillips Dean has a stronger threat on the power play shooting off his strong side than as a one-timer. But hey. Once Mantha got traded, I guess they didn't really have a one-time threat. So, oh, wait, they did. Philip Roddick. But anyways, um, he would have been on the same side as Adina. So, I guess it doesn't matter there. But why special teams gets an F for me? You, We can critique the power play all we want. Much like the Red Wings as a team, they only had so much they could do and only so much they could work with. And they weren't going to be able to manufacture a ton of goals with the talent they had. Understandable. They did nothing to help it, but understandable. This was a team that was competent defensively. This was a team that had a heavy defensive focus with elite goaltending. This should have been a top half of the league penalty kill. This is why Darren Helm plays 15 to 20 minutes a game. This is why Luke Lindening plays 15 to 20 minutes a game. This is why you have so many quote unquote defensive specialists. They all sucked at it. The power play unit as a whole, the penalty kill unit as a whole was garbage. Bottom five in the league most of the year. I can't remember if it finished bottom five, but it was there. Just an absolute tragedy of a penalty kill. So understanding that the power play was likely going to be bad, no matter how good of a system they implemented, there's no excuse for the penalty kill. Just absolute trash. And that is the biggest reason they get an F from me. Now, looking at coaching overall, um, the timeline of my year is I, I started off pretty bummed out because it seemed like the Red Wings weren't just weren't improving and they did have a better team. Uh, Eisenman did a lot last offseason in terms of addition by subtraction, you know, letting a lot of players go who were just pretty much dead weight on the team or expiring contracts or what have you. And he did bring in guys like Bobby Ryan, uh, Troy Stetcher, uh, John Merrill. Like those are the kinds of players who are going to come in and not, you know, give you a ton of wins above replacement or anything like that. But those are the incremental gains you need in depth to become a lot more viable. And at the start of the year, it just 
their win percentage at one point was pretty noticeably lower than it was in last year's not I guess no the the 2019-20 season horrible horrible like almost record-breaking bad season for the Red Wings it was their worst season in a long 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 time um and then I gave it some pause and I cooled off a little bit and I realized there's a lot happening um save for the special teams which we just talked about one the Red Wings had not played competitive hockey in near on a year uh, they're jobbed in terms of what they could really warm up with. Like they had an excuse of a training camp or, or whatever you wanted to call it. Like it, it's not enough to get prepped for a full season. Uh, these guys are all rusty uh, or coming in from different leagues and different sizes of ice. They hadn't played together. There's not a lot to be said for practice. And they got destroyed by injuries all year. How much of that is related to being extremely rusty? I would say there's that's a pretty heavy correlation, um, not scientifically. I'm not going to give you any evidence of that. It's just my feelings. Sorry. Um, but they they really had a rough go of, of the start, and I guess I shouldn't have been surprised. Seeing the team recover from that and seeing them come into some kind of form, they weren't a good team. They weren't even an average team. And when they were bad, they were really bad. But I did see the amount of competitiveness and I saw the amount of staying in games where they really shouldn't have been destroyed and, and they stopped the bleeding on a lot of games where you know last season they might have got, gotten run that to me is a tangible improvement and I thought yeah of course Jeff Blashill sold out on offense to provide like hard hard defense to do that that this was a, a an above average defensive team overall um and that has some long-term implications and i don't know how viable that is and i have my own feelings on that but overall i guess this is a long-winded way of saying i think coaching deserves a b in the context of this season i think they deserve the credit of finding a way to 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 claw back that improvement somehow exclusive of the special teams you include the special teams that moves firmly in c territory for me but big picture i think it's really hard doing what they did so obviously I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of all my thoughts and all this. If people want to know my true, like my full, full breakdown of my reasoning uh, for a lot of things, obviously we had like an hour long episode just talking about this. Um, so go back and listen to that if you haven't already. So first talk about the positive. I mean, you're right. They were competitive. They were in a lot of games. It was because largely because of a horrifically boring shutdown defensive first style which for fans sucks. There's no silver lining to that. As a hockey fan, it sucks to watch. But as a coach trying to keep a bad team competitive, it's the right approach. I like I'm not arguing. I would have liked for him to have implemented something other than chip and chase offensively, but from their red line back, mostly they got it right this year outside of the penalty kill. It, they were responsible, everybody bought in, they played hard, they kept good systems. They were good defensively. We we know they were a complete tire fire offensively. Blashill does seem to have the ear of this team because if he was getting them to do, if he was getting guys like Larkin and Zadina to consistently chip and chase, whether or not that's the right approach, they bought in, they trust him, they believe in him, and there's something to be said for that, which is, in my opinion, probably the biggest reason he got extended and, and he's kept around because the players probably do like him. And if they like him, they'll play for him. Um, and there's, Absolutely something to be said for that. Um, offensively, this team was non-existent. I don't care who was hurt. I don't care 
who they had, you can watch what they were attempting and know it was junk. Whether they had Larkin, Bertuzzi, Fabry for the whole season, what they were doing offensively just wasn't going to work. Um, and it wasn't going to work to the point where they could have been even the league average team. That's fine. Baby steps. I, I talked about at one point midseason, if the plan is let's perfect the defense this year. So then next year we don't have to reteach this and then we can focus on offense. Sure. I get it. And that's a good plan if that's what they are in fact doing. So we will see next year. Um, no arguments here if that's the plan. Where I have my biggest gripe with this coaching staff is kind of they lost the plot. The Red Wings were very, very far out of a playoff spot pretty quickly. I think we knew a third optimistically halfway through the season. It wasn't a playoff team. They didn't have a hope in hell um, and that this is a rebuilding team. Now, I understand Cider, Valeno, a lot of the young guys, there were reasons they couldn't be playing. But that wasn't true for all of them. There was, after his brief stint, there was no reason Evgeny Suchinkov should have been on waivers, should have been playing eight minutes a night, should have been given the role he was. There was no reason Giovanni Smith should have spent most of the season in Grand Rapids, Grand Rapids after showing what he could do at the NHL level. There was no reason... Darren Helm and Luke Lindenning should be carrying the bulk of the ice time. There should be no reason there's games where Jacob Verana is playing 14 minutes a night. I understand the system. I can tolerate the boring hockey for the sake of staying competitive. What I could not tolerate from this team is losing the plot on the rebuild. Luke Lindenning, Darren Helm, and these guys that he leaned on heavily have no long-term future with this team. Like them or not, they might have a year or two more. They have no long-term future with this team. I don't care what your thoughts are on Evgeny Svechnikov's ultimate upside. He might have a future with this team. Giovanni Smith is a fourth liner at best, but he's young. He might have a future with this team. Troy Stetcher was a healthy scratch despite being the team's best defenseman this year. He's not super old, but he's not super young either, but he's still might have a future with this team. Dennis Cholosky might have a future with this team. Gustav Lindstrom might have a future with this team. These are the guys that at least in the second half of the season should have been the ones getting leaned on. They should have been put in every situation. They should have got a ton of ice time. So we're not sitting here wondering, is Svechnikov really that good? Does Cholosky really have a future with this team? Can Cholosky be a power play quarterback? Can Giovanni Smith play a regular shift on the fourth line? We should have had clear answers for this by now because they should have had ample opportunity to show us and they didn't. And that to me is the biggest failing on these coaches this year. And then again, get into the whole conversation about which players progressed, how many regressed, etc. But to me, that is the biggest failing of this coaching staff this year coupled with the regression of a lot of key players who are on the right side of 25. I don't know. I, my, my, the most optimistic grade I can give them is a C minus. They were competitive and they figured out half the ice. Yeah. I, That's, I don't think like you and I don't even necessarily disagree on a lot of this. Um, I think I'm just coming in. 
I'm coming in pretty heavily right now, and that's probably skewed by the the recent extension. I'm coming in really heavily on the Blashills doing what he needed to do to to get the team to some wins because the team couldn't lose as much as they did the previous season. But I also don't disagree with you. So I I think a if you think it's generous a generous C minus, I still think that's well within reason. I'm probably I'm probably further giving a, a B. Because that's not taking a holistic view of special teams than you are with the C minus, in fairness. Um, just because I think this won't be the last time we talk about coaching. Uh, very quickly here, let's rhyme off a few high points, low points, MVPs. Um, your high point of this season, what was your highlight? Like the either concept, play, whatever. Jacob Verana scoring eight goals in 11 games. Yeah, I was going to say Verana his uh his first goal on the breakaway coming out of the box yeah i mean his four goal game is for me if you want to pinpoint a game that's the one um but like, jacob rana and a first yeah yeah and a second like it's it's gonna be a meme like jacob rana outscored anthony mantha in the regular season and i don't think mantha's done anything in the playoffs like this is one Steve Osman is going to be able to hang his hat on for a long time. Um, L- low point. <sighs> it's Thomas Grace. Thomas Grace back to back shutouts, and all he gets out of it is a shootout win. <laughs> uh, I was going to say the the power play drought. I know for us it turned into a meme, and there was a great fundraiser that came because of it. But in all seriousness, forty straight. It was nearly a month of power plays. I think a back-to-back shutouts kind of encap is the moment that encapsulate encapsulates this team's offensive ineptitude. Um, the forty, the power play drought, yeah, like, but that was spread out over so long, it got so bad we started having fun with it. So was it really a low point at that point? <laughs> like it became a running joke. Um, yeah, there was there was a lot of low points. Jamie Ben on Dylan Larkin, the power play drought. Uh, the drubbing in Nashville. The they had a couple other drubbings this year, um, but yeah, no. I for me it was the red a red the Red Wings had a goalie pitch back to back shutouts and they came within a hair of losing both games. Like, just think about that for a second. There is no way that's ever happened in NHL history before, and the Red Wings came within a hair of it. Um, your MVP. Oh, actually, my low point. Did I say my low point? I said my low point. Yeah, the power uh, drop. Your MVP for this season, Jonathan Bernier. This isn't even up for discussion. <laughs> Jonathan Bernier, honorable mention, Anthony Mantha, because he got us Verona and, and a first round <laughs> pick. Uh, but no, seriously, Jonathan Bernier. Yeah. Everything I said about Jonathan Bernier leading up to the season was I expect him to be good, but I don't expect him to be out of his mind. And what was he besides out of his mind? Save for a few Uh, games coming back from injury, like God. Again, all going into award season. Please, for the love of God, will somebody put him on his ballot so the rest of the league catches on to what he did? Okay, Uh, we're gonna jump into overtime here. We're running a little long. Uh, Overtime on this episode of the Wind Wheel Podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Uh, They're the reason we are able to run long and uh, do what we do in in talk Red Wings hockey. So, uh, thank them. They're the best people on this earth uh ruthless and toothless says what nick did was an absolute embarrassment for hockey like a bunch of neanderthals skating around with a stick and a rock 
I'm all for sticking up for teammates when justified, but when it's an accident and unintentional, there's no room for that in the game. You need to get rid of that type of fighting if you want to reach a diverse crowd and grow the sport. All other major sports have no fighting and they're wildly successful. I'm not advocating to eradicate fighting. Fighting is in the DNA of hockey and when used properly can swing momentum, change dynamics and have fans wanting more. But that one specifically was an embarrassment, just my opinion. I feel like you guys should charge more per episode. You're saving me a ton on therapist sessions. Thanks. Um, Ryan Hubbard says with the recent news of Bergen and Vero signing ELCs, where do you see them playing in Detroit or another year in development in Grand Rapids? Also, Brad, I think of myself as the one wings fan who thinks that they can sniff a playoff spot next year. Too bad. I'm going to miss it being deployed. Um, thanks for the content. Let's go Red Wings. And here's to hoping for more, uh, great content. Uh, first of all, Ryan, stay safe. Uh, second, are very brave for two reasons on that comment. <laughs> Um, Berggren, Grand Rapids, Vero overseas, maybe another year. Yeah, my gut's telling me Vero's going to spend another year in Liga, seeing as he was playing a pretty prominent role on a very good team. So he he is in a very good situation. But I also wouldn't be shocked if he comes over to Grand Rapids because this is going to be one of those weird circumstances where Vero or Johansson could very easily take Sabrango's spot because uh, Sabrango was only there because he couldn't play for Kitchener this year because the OHL didn't get a season going. But under the rules from what uh, I was told, uh, Sabrengo will have to go back to Kitchener next year. So, you know, if, if we swap one third round pick for another, sure. <laughs> uh, third man in says, I'm curious what you think is behind the trend to go 11 forward 7D. Detroit did it a bunch and so do Tampa, Florida, and some other teams. Is it just an artifact of the current COVID flat cap environment or are we seeing an actual tactical change in how the game is played? It's more COVID than tactical because it's not a good tactic unless your team is built in a very specific way or you have one line of forwards that you just play five minutes a game because you can't string together four good lines. Um, so if you're if you're rolling heavy on three lines anyway, you might as well get the extra rest for your defensemen. But primarily, it's a COVID thing. Josh Brink says, in the past 30 days, I graduated from college, got a crazy good job as a software engineer, and found out I'm going to be a dad. I decided to celebrate all of that by becoming a patron again and drinking. Well, Josh, first of all, thank you for celebrating with us. Secondly, congratulations. Holy shit. Yeah, my God. That's a that's a five years worth of good news. What a week. Um, seriously, though, congrats. It's an incredible news. And all the best to you and your partner on your uh, upcoming little one. Uh, anyways, what aging teams do you see Eisman targeting for bad contracts next year? And why is it Pittsburgh? <laughs> Pittsburgh, Tampa Bay, Vancouver. Tampa is the one again. Vancouver um, has a G- uh, GM who has a lot of pressure to do something. So maybe you can take advantage of something there. Minnesota. Yeah. I I don't know why I have there's there's nothing behind it but Minnesota Fiala's do a contract Kaprizov's going to be do a contract they are they have expansion issues right now they are one of the teams that's going to get absolutely bent over by the expansion draft so I look at Minnesota I don't have a real there's no connection yet but um Michael Rasmussen, six foot a million, says any examples of long-term tenured coaches on awful teams uh, and rebuilds that please the fans slash critics of a team? Yeah, Barry Trotz was coach of the National Predators for a long time. 
Yeah, that's a good one. Um, what other teams sucked for a while and then turned it around? Toronto switched coaches, Buffalo switched coaches, Arizona switched coaches, Edmonton switched coaches. Modern NHL coaches don't stay for long. They really nope. don't. Blashill is very much an exception. When did Quenville get to Chicago? He came in when they were on the up and up, right? Uh, that was a long time ago. Yeah, because he was still in St. Louis after the lockout. So, yeah, I can't. I think Trotz is. Yeah. Trotz is the only one I can think of. Will Schobers is really excited about Bergeron, Vero, and Raymond uh, signing ELCs. Uh, going into year three of the Iser plan, it's going to be interesting uh, if after some success for Raymond and Bergeron, if they're called up or given the Nyquist treatment or even worse, the Chalosky treatment. Either way, I think the handling of the next wave of prospects will be the best window into Eisenman's process. You might have touched on this, but what does it take for a call-up for Raymond and Bergeron? Also, what are your expect- expectations next season? We covered that. Thanks for all you guys do, and I'm always looking forward to the next pod. What would it take for a call-up? Good amount of injuries and some dominance in Grand Rapids. Yeah, I I would bet we'll see them for a handful of games, uh, not too dissimilar to what the Red Wings did with Valeno uh, this year, just in a very different circumstance and probably a few extra games. Um Depends how well, because if Raymond is absolutely dominating in Grand Rapids, and yeah, like if they force your hand, they force your hand. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. And the Red Wings truthfully don't have that many open roster spots going into next spe- season, especially at forward. And that's not even factoring in if Bobby Ryan or Sam Gagne or any of the pending UFAs come back. Um. Yeah, a couple injuries and some dominating play, and and we'll probably see a, a handful of games for both of them towards the end of the year. Nick Lindman says, with the draft season in full swing, decide to finally become a patron. Nick, thank you so much. Uh, says, I'm uh, in that spirit. If you had a choice between two prospects, would you rather draft one knowing they'd be the next Lidstrom or Fedorov? Okay, this is Lidstrom, cool. hands down. It's closer than people would give it yeah. credit for but it's Lidstrom because if you have the chance to draft the best defenseman of the modern era of the NHL and the modern era extends really far back in this measure you got to go with that Nick Lidstrom's the best defenseman to play in the NHL since the 1970s so yeah you take that uh Aaron Hudson says hey boys how much roster turnover do you expect also with the Caps looking like they're losing their series against Boston who would you take with their pick I'm typing this as my wife cheers for Nashville as they score against Carolina in the playoffs and help um good amount of roster turnover with the amount of UFAs I, I think you're looking at a similar no you don't think no. so Brad so I actually have uh so if you look at the left side for the Detroit Red Wings for next season, uh, I'm only counting RFAs or players under contract. Tyler Bertuzzi, Jacob Rana, Adam Ernie, Evgeny Suchnikov, Giovanni Smith. So they have five left wingers there. Uh, maybe you lose one of them to uh, expansion draft, but for the most part, your left side is locked. Uh, at center, you have Larkin, Rasmussen, Nemesnikov, Nielsen, and Valeno. Okay, unless you move one of them to the wing or wave Nielsen. You, even even if you wave Nielsen, you don't really have a spot there. Right wing's where it gets interesting because right now it's Zadina, Fabry, Ponick. Ironically, three left-hand shots. Um, but I think we all expect the Red Wings to bring back one of Bobby Ryan or Sam Gagne. So if you expect 
Joe Valeno to make the opening night roster, and you expect the Red Wings to re-sign one of Gagnier, Bobby Ryan, and you expect Seattle to take Dennis Cholosky or Gustav Lindstrom in the expansion draft, which, let's be honest, they probably should. I count zero roster spots available up front on opening night. Well, screw you, Brad, but I see your point. Now, there's obviously going to be injuries, depth. Eisenman will grab someone, but yeah, no, it's it's basically full already. Um, moving on, Matt S. says, with all this ELC talk, I'm hoping Petrozelli signs so we don't have to worry about, any, worry about it anymore and hate to lose a potential future uh, goalie from the pipeline. Random question, what's the one, who's the one Red Wing you wish did not get traded away or left in free agency? For me, it has to be Fedorov. Fans are still hurt that he left in 03, and he has since said he regretted it, especially with how it played out. I feel like we could have had another cup or two if he stayed. I'm hoping Canada is close to opening up since Michigan is starting to reopen. I'm a Red Wing season ticket holder, and I can't wait to attend games together, let alone at all, period. Keep up the good work, dub dub crew. Hey, as of yesterday, we were allowed to go outside again. Yeah. I wish that was a joke. Um, oh, I can't wait. I cannot wait. But um, we're allowed to go. We're allowed to golf and go to like outdoor sports fields again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they extended the lockdown to the middle of June. So I hate it here. My biased answer here is Brendan Shanahan. He's my favorite player of all time. I understand why he left when he did, but I wish he would have stayed with the Red Wings. Um, yeah, Shanahan's a good one. Fedorov's the obvious one. I'm not really coming up with a ton of other good answers. The Red Wings, for the most part, have been good at retaining their key players. The guys that they traded away recently, those trades have worked out very well. I mean, Tomas Tatar is still a great player, but so far the Red Wings have got a third Robert Master Simone and Joe Valeno out of that trade. So I would do that over again in a heartbeat. Um, don't remember who the picks were out of the Nyquist trade, but whatever Nyquist has fallen off a cliff with injuries. So I don't know. I really don't have a good answer here at the top of my head. I feel like here, here's an obscure one. I feel like we could have got a few more good years out of Robert Lang had he stayed in Detroit. <laughs> that's, that's too obscure for like, not too obscure. He like, was really good while no, he was here. I know, he was but really good. They, the team got, the team didn't, I don't know, like he's, he's farther down the list is what I'm saying. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's way down the list, but like there was really only two obvious ones and they've already been said. Okay. Dave W says, Hey guys, just here to say the Griffins are going to be incredible next season. And in Eisenman, we trust, uh, Andrew Bohan says, hello, my lovely dub dub boys. Isn't it just an absolute sin to see, uh, <laughs> Troy Stetcher at the world championship and what looks like the worst team Canada performance in years. Doesn't he deserve a break from shite teams? Yes, he does. The world championships are maximum chaos right now. Kazakhstan is two and O Latvia beat Canada, uh, Sweden lost to Denmark and I want to say Belarus or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I can't get a I can't get a haircut right now, not because of the lockdown, but because my barber is the third line winger for Team Canada. <laughs> I should have tried out. Uh, Cnod says, "Can we take a minute and talk about the fact that Cider won Defenseman of the Year at age twenty? Am I overreacting or is this a huge deal? Not overreacting. It is a very big deal." 
And also, he was 19 for most of the season. He only recently turned 20. Yeah. Side note, Stevie Y saying there's a lot of players I want, but I'm having a hard time convincing GMs to give them to me with some much needed comic relief. Yeah, Steve is a really good with deadpan delivery. He's got such a dry sense of humor in the best way. Getting dusted by five-year-olds on skates says, please explain to me the set of rules for the lottery. Uh, if we win the right lottery next year and say we finish last in the Bedard draft, can we not pick first that year? No, you can win twice in a five-year period. So, so, And this year, from what I've been told, does not count. It does so not in, count. In theory, the Red Wings could win the next three draft lotteries. But what I think you're asking, you're correct. You're just a year early. So let's assume things go poorly for the Red Wings in the rebuild and they're really bad for three more seasons after this. They win the right lottery. They win or at least win a spot in the Bedard lottery. The year after then, if the Red Wings finish last in the standings and two teams beyond the 10th worst team win the lottery. So hypothetically, the 12th and 14th worst teams win the lottery. They can only jump up 10 spots. So then the Red Wings would still hold the first overall pick. So they wouldn't win first overall. They would hold first overall. So theoretically possible, however unlikely it is. Uh, Lars, the prophet of the towering behemoth, says after a dismal season, Liverpool still manages to finish third. Uh, you have to love that. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God, I love Jurgen Klopp. Uh, if the Panthers offered you Bobrovsky and their first round picks for three consecutive years, 22, 23, and 24, would you take it if you managed the Red Wings? A uh, thousand percent. My God, yes. Yes, 100 percent. Uh, Kyle Hashman says, just watched Phil win ageless. Pick location for the Caps won't move much unless lower percentiles makes it further. make it further. Uh, looking around 25th pick or so, which, which is such a crapshoot, would it be better to trade down and get more picks, or do you even think it's an option? Right now, I'm thinking it's a good trade down spot. Um, how far? I I wouldn't go super far if someone's offering you a late first, early second, plus another late second as a kicker-ish. Probably this is a great year to do it. The counter argument to myself on that one is this is also the draft where a lot of top 10, top 15 caliber players will slip out of the that range because of lack of viewing, lack of playing time and all the other weird circumstances. So this is also the draft where you could get a star in the 20s. So maybe hold on to it if you're really confident in your scouts. Slava Kozlov's doppelganger says, all I'm going to say is if Phil can do it, Evan has time. Also, I'll cry when Kane leaves. You don't know such pain, Ryan. Suarez doesn't count. Yeah, you know, you're right. I don't know Kane level. Um, also, congrats today. That was hysterical. He's talking about soccer, Brad. Uh, time for some Reddit questions. Uh, Han Solo Mail says, we knew the Canadian roster was probably one of the worst in IHF history, but it felt good to beat them for the first time, and we didn't even have Elvis. It was Matisse Kivlen Kivlenix. Look, any uh, Canadian fan who sits there and like rattles off about how it was a bad team, blah, blah, blah. Now, they hate fun. Good for Latvia. That was awesome to see. I loved watching them celebrate in the streets. That's just good stuff. Like, who cares? Like, celebrate that. That was so cool to see. Uh, Mighty Latvia. Also, Latvian goalies in stymieing Canadians in international tournaments. Hysterical. Yeah. Anybody else remember Krister's Gudlevskis? I do. Yeah. 
Uh, Red Wings 1023 says, Ryan is my new BFF for encouraging me to buy a barber pole. Fedorov jersey. Sorry, Brad. Um, okay, there's a question for Evan, and he's not here. Uh, Blake, that ass up. Says, we, can try, we can try and answer it as if we were, Evan. No, I think it's a little bit too technical for golf. Maybe to ask it again next uh, Sunday. Uh, you can hear the fireworks going on for the long weekend in the background behind me. Uh, Blake, that as up, says, Eisman slash Draper go Wallstead with our 1A. From an organizational depth standpoint, what position and or style of player would you like to see with our 1B? Uh, um, I, Wallstead's not an option for me where the Red Wings are going to be picking. Just getting that out of the way. No, no, it's his um, hypothetical, not yours. So what what are one A one B like? Are we talking a style of goalie? No, no, no. With the first first I'm round pick, confused. they go with Wallstead. The yeah. go with Wallstead. Then who do you want them to take in terms of position or style with their second pick? Uh, Kosa, because I'm going to assume we didn't take Wallstead with the You're top. So annoying. They took Wallstead. Best player. The Red Wings suck everywhere. Like they're like. Let's be honest. If the Red Wings can pick best player available. At a premium position, it's a luxury. Like I would say their biggest needs right now are offensive-minded defensemen, a left-side defenseman, um, a top-six center, um, an elite playmaker because poor Lucas Raymond can't do it all himself and Bergeron's still very much a question mark as hyped as we are. Um, yeah, no, best best player available. He did edit his Not comment. Not a goalie. He did edit his comment to say Brad would say best player available. Um, okay, the we have two more comments here. I'll read them quickly because I think they're both good. Rick Mann says, what are your thoughts about stripping Larkin of the C and giving it to someone who no. exemplifies what it means to be a true leader, someone with speed, skill, and a sense of responsibility who has never turned his back on the team, like Darren Helm? <laughs> Uh, last question here is from. And Wing- th- that's it. This is the last episode of the Winged Wheel podcast. It's been a good <laughs> run, everybody. Uh, um, last question here. Wingnut17 says, New listener. I'm a Red Wings fan that's lived in Tampa for over 10 years. My loyalty lie with Detroit in the Iser plan. Love all the info you guys provide. Looking forward to the draft previews coming up. With that said, I'm a big fan of drafting need in this, uh, this year's draft. Need a puck moving left D, and I'm really high on Hughes. What are your thoughts on him over even someone like Owen Power? Nope. <laughs> we'll get into it. Um, I really do like Luke Hughes. He's a clear-cut top 10 pick for me, no doubt in my mind. Um, he pro- Based on where Detroit's picking, he probably will be a guy we focus in on um, because it'll be kind of in the range of where I'll have him ranked, where the Red Wings are picking. Um at best he's my third defenseman off the board in this draft maybe a little lower we'll see Uh, i'm really high on owen power and brant clark personally so i would prefer one of them slid to detroit but we'll see yeah i really like hughes though yeah, I, I'm, I am a big fan of Hughes. I'm not sure. I think Owen Power is one of the few guys like you, Brad, who's kind of cemented himself in a pseudo upper tier of players. Um, and so for that, I, I won't say I prefer him. My God, the fireworks are getting bigger. Um, but no, Luke Hughes might end up being the pick for Detroit again. Like you said, puck moving left D. And assuming Detroit doesn't get some lottery luck, which <laughs> good joke, that'll be the range. Unless he goes sooner. Who knows? Um, okay. 
before these fireworks start coming through my window, uh, let's wrap up this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, I'd like to thank all of our supporters on Patreon, our name level sponsors, Arjun Shanker, Eves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand Foundation, Brett Bailey, Terry, driver of Evans Furkwagen, Taylor Tagel, uh, Botched and Bloody Brazilian Wax, Brandon M, Citizen High Five, Craig Kibble, Greech, Hana Lee, Hassam Alkasem, Jacob Turner, Jake Kiefer, Jeremiah Dobo, Joe Santangelo, Kalen Wood, Kevin, new name level sponsor, welcome Kevin, Cody Stark, Kyle Hashman, Kyle McClure, Matt McKay, Matthew M. Rice, R.A., Ryan Hubbard, Scott Martin, Zach Spring, Andrew Bohan, Sam Bankson, Adam, I wish I could finish like Ernie, another former junior goalie turned golfer, Antonio Gracias, Connor Layton, and Evans Bingo Card, Jeremy Brocker, John Evans, Joseph Minima, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Matt Keeler, Old Fashioned Ass Lickin', as good as it gets, Stan Olson, the most dangerous lead in hockey, Reed Baldwin, Trevor Pevavar, vaxxed, waxed, and ready to chow velvet. Thank you all so much. Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.